Well, good morning again. My name is Sean. Like I said, I'm the lead pastor here at Sycamore, or as it says on page nine in your bulletin, apparently I'm also the worst evangelist ever. So, yes, the office staff came to me all in a tizzy Thursday afternoon. It's like, our normal format, it makes it look like the title's referring to you. Should we change it? I was like, well, and ruin this joke? Are you kidding me? No. <laughs> So we're in a series on the book of Ruth this morning. Ruth is an Old Testament historical book. And as such, one of the things about Old Testament historical books is they zoom in on God's special people. In the Old Testament, God had entered into a relationship with the people of Israel in a way that he had not entered into a relationship with other peoples. And he, he came and he told them, said, I didn't do this because you're the best of all the people. In fact, I did it because you're kind of like the weakest and worst and it is show my glory more to raise you up than someone who's already elevated. And so he has special blessings for them, but he also has special obligations. And we need to be careful when we read Old Testament historical books and it talks about land, and it talks about country, it talks about nation. Very often we take those same concepts and we just kind of put them here and we start thinking about our land and our country and our nation. And that's not exactly the most faithful, accurate way to do it. God is talking to people he's already in a relationship with, people who've already submitted to him, people who are already there. And so really the best way to understand Old Testament historical books is to kind of think about how God is coming to his people like he comes to us in the church and he's calling us to a deeper, more refined discipleship. So as we read Old Testament historical books, we need to read them as Christians already in a relationship and see that God is coming to his church and he's refining, trying to get a more robust discipleship through these things. And so as we read that, we have a, there's a lot for Ruth to tell us for those of us in church world. This is a book about refining our existing relationship with the Lord. Now, if you're here, you're listening online, you're visiting this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, there's still plenty for you to, to get from this. In fact, it's very helpful for you to see how God comes and gently yet directly critiques and refines his own people because just like you, he does not like superficial relationships. He doesn't like hypocrisy. He wants authenticity. And so books like Ruth help bring forth what an authentic relationship with the triune God looks like. So we kind of did the introduction to Ruth last week, and so at the end of six verses, we're focused on this lady named Naomi. So what happened was in the midst of a famine, this Israelite family, instead of repenting, instead of looking at how God revealed himself and said, hey, when I send certain things to you, famine being one of the specific ones, it's like a check engine light on your dashboard. You don't want to ignore that one. You want, you want to you know, check what was, what's going on there. And instead, this family's like, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're just going to bail. And so they leave. They go to somewhere you're not supposed to go. They go to a land called Moab, about 50 miles east of Israel. It was a, a land where they just did not like the people of Israel. The people of Israel did not like them. But as we said last week, you know, very often the grass is greener over the septic tank. And so they went to the greener grass of Moab to get away from the famine. So... Naomi at this point has suffered just incredible, incredible loss. Her husband died in Moab. Her sons died in Moab. She has no children. She has no grandchildren. She has two daughter-in-laws. And she finally realizes in verse 6 that going to Moab was a mistake. She should not have done that. And in one tiny, small act of repentance we saw last week, she turns from Moab and she decides to go home back 
to the land of Israel. And that's where we pick up today, starting in Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 7. As is our tradition, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? It's found for you on page 10 there in your bulletin in the ESV translation. Ruth chapter 1, verses 7 through 18. This is God's word. <clears throat> so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my room that, womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more. Also, if anything but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Let's go together to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've revealed yourself to us that we may know you, that you were not unknowable or uncaring, but you care enough to reveal your very self to us. So Father, we ask that you would once again send your spirit, open this text up to us that we might know your truth. Father, we pray that we, we would see ourselves in this text this morning and that we'd see your grace to us. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, please be seated. And boys and girls who are still here in the service, page 11, there's a, your own special version there. We'll be referring to that throughout the uh, sermon today, so you'll want to have that in front of you. So our theme this morning as we jump into this text is this, it's that God challenges our idolatrous hopes so we will hope in him. You see, you know, even we believers, we can put our hope in idols, but God offers real hope, and he does that often through our faltering, stumbling walk, as we'll see here today. So we're going to start out in these first couple verses, and we see here what I'm calling an orthodox idolatry. It begins in verse 7 with a literal, it says, she broke away from the situation in Moab. And her daughters-in-law follow her, and she doesn't want them to, so she enters into an ancient Near Eastern formal goodbye ceremony where it's official, you can now leave, don't stay with your mother-in-law, go home to your mothers, she says. You see, and in that culture, peace was found, peace and comfort, they were found in a homeland, in a family. And so in an act of kindness, she says, go back to your homeland, go back to your family, go back to Moab. 
And kind of the subtext there is, as poorly as I was treated in Moab, you can be expected to be treated in Israel, so go home. Your life's been hard enough. I release you, basically. Now, she blesses him. Look with me at verse 8. She says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. So last week I taught you a Hebrew word. Remember, it's shuv, like the word shuv with a V on it. Remember, it means to turn, to return, or repent. It's all over this passage today. Every time that turn back or don't go with me, turn. But it, it often means repent, the word shuv. Now I'm going to teach you another one. This one's much more fun. Okay, you get to, you, you get to do that ancient Near East kind of <laughs> thing, right? It's, it's chesed, okay? H-E-S-E-D, but kind of clear your throat on the H. So chesed, okay? This is class participation, Chesed. There we go. Chesed. Okay. So this is a great word and you can't translate it with one word. Just like try to explain to someone who doesn't speak English all the facets of the English word love which you, and just use one word in their language. You can't do it. And so too, English translations just fall all over themselves trying to translate this word chesed. The most famous is the King James Version loves to use that big word loving kindness. That's chesed. Here, I think they translate it as deal kindly. It's actually, she says, may the Lord give you chesed. It's fundamentally God's covenantal love and dealings with his people. It's his feelings and actions towards his special people. It's his condescending kindness and compassion on those who deserve his displeasure, but instead they get his pleasure and kindness. That's chesed. And Naomi says, would the Lord come and would he work chesed in your life? And she wishes this love upon them. And notice she says, from the God of Israel, may he give this to you. This is not how you talk if you've abandoned your faith. If life has got you to the point where you're like, I'm out, I'm done, it's been hard, I'm going home, and forget you, God. Not doing it. And there has not been much chesed in her life in Moab at this point. But she believes that there is some in God and that he can give it to her daughters-in-law. So she wishes that upon them. And notice how she thinks they'll get it. Look with me at verse 9. What does she say? She says, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. So this idea of rest, especially to a Hebrew mind, it's consolation, it's security, it's ease, it's comfort. Boys and girls, I want you to understand this. So here's how I put it for you. Let's look at your verse 9 together. It says this. It says, I pray the Lord gives you comfort and hope in new husbands. Did you catch what's going on here? It's subtle, but it's pretty significant. Naomi has repented from her life in Moab and she's heading back, but she is still living in her idolatry. She assumes the, the source of hope and security is what? The source of hope, and she's lost it, where is it found? It's found in having a husband. It's found in having sons. It's found in a family. She doesn't have that. There's no hesed for me, but maybe God can give that to you in husbands and a home. See, that's, that's an idolatrous longing. She's saying it's not necessarily from God. It's from these things, and God uses those things. Now, those are good things. Don't hear me saying, Pastor Sean doesn't like families. Not what I'm saying. Those are good things. But they're not ultimate things. Family cannot be your source of rest and peace. And you, I've, I mean, I've been ordained 
since I was younger, and I know for many of you I'm still younger, but about over half my life I've been ordained, and I have done so much marriage counseling. Most of it I'm probably not qualified to do, and I tell them that up front and send them on to people who are. But so often the main issue is one spouse has basically taken an emotional straw and jabbed it into the chest of the other spouse and is sucking, you are my source for joy, happiness, contentment, peace, fulfillment in this life. You, you, you. And they suck them dry. And the other person says, I'm out. I'm done. I'm empty. I can't be your God anymore. Because we take this good thing God has given us, a loving spouse, and we say, You're not the channel of God's blessing, you're the source of God's blessing and no one can live up to that. That's what Naomi's doing here. She does not wish her daughters come to the God of Israel for hope and security. She says no, she asks for him to give it to them back in pagan Moab. See, God's really an afterthought for Naomi at this point. She's more interested in a good life than a heavenly father like many of us, if we're candid, right? See, her life has fallen apart. She's repented of Moab, but she hasn't repented of not really living in the reality of a relationship with God. Oh, Christians not living in the reality of the gospel, that, that, that's so many of us, isn't it? We struggle with guilt. We have this performance anxiety about our Christian life because we don't really live in the reality that the death of Jesus paid for the guilt of our sin. We struggle in our marriages because we don't believe the gospel. We look to our spouse to fulfill us in a way that only Jesus can. See, but in the gospel, Jesus comes and presents himself as the source of rest of the source of peace. And united to him, God gives us status. He gives us significance. He gives us what we seek. And so anchored in Jesus, we are then secure. So we can love our spouses as we ought. So we can appreciate the blessings God gives us without worshiping them instead of demanding that those things fulfill us. That's what Naomi's doing here. She's assuming those are the source. Go back to those sources because over here with God and Israel, there's nothing. Go back. So Naomi finishes her goodbye in the text, and I love how they won't go. So she gets a bit curt, even sarcastic in the Hebrew. We kind of caught that for the kids. Let's all look at the kids' translation, verses 11 and 12. Naomi said to them, go home. There is no way I can give new husbands to you. Shoo! I have no hope of a husband, and neither will you if you stay with me. Okay, so this whole husband thing is kind of getting a little bit creepy at this point, unless you know what's going on, right? So ancient Near East culture, not just Israel, but the whole ancient Near East, the family name, the line, what they would call the seed, was very important. And so the custom was that if a man who had a wife died, it was his brother's responsibility to marry her and to give her a son. And that firstborn son would not have his name. It would carry on his dead brother's name. It was called leverate marriage from the word levir, which means um, uh, brother-in-law. Very common because that name was so important. And usually attached to that name was some sort of property like it was in Israel. So, it was like, so basically these three women are saying, okay, we need some brothers-in-law. We don't have brothers-in-law. What are we going to do? And Naomi's like, are you seriously going to wait like 20 years for me to raise a couple husbands for you? That ain't happening. 
See, Naomi is pointing out, this is not going to happen. I have no family left. I have no prospects of a family. I have nothing to offer you. And then she says something really amazing. Look with me at the last part of verse 13. She says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Literally, she says, the Lord has attacked me. See, Naomi sees all this stuff from the original famine until right now as the act of a sovereign God. He is the one who caused all these hardships. She puts her bitterness in the language of covenant. She knows who to blame. You see, unlike us, notice she doesn't feel the need to be God's PR man. She doesn't have to spend the situation to make God look good. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, God never lays on you more than you can handle. It's well-meaning, but it's not true. God lays on us more than we can handle all the time. That's why we need Jesus. See, Naomi has actually a very grounded and informed view of God, and so she knows how to mourn. She knows how to lament. My life stinks, and it's your fault. But you're still God. To put it in the language of our current kind of the way we look at the world. She says, it's not a multiverse, it's a universe. It's been unkind, but it's still a universe. There's one in charge. I have some issues with your management, but I'm not after your job. Here's how I put it for the boys and girls. Let's look at your verse 13. It says this, it says, my life is hopeless because the Lord refuses to let me be happy. Oh, students here, See, what's happening is Naomi wants them to social distance. She thinks she's infected with this disease called God is out to get me. So you need to mask up and stay back or you'll get infected too. See, she's a bit messed up about who God is, but she's not all wrong about his power. I remember in college one time I went into the cafeteria and it was on this channel. I would never be watching this channel. It was some sort of Christian news channel. I don't even know the name of it. And there had been a massive hurricane in the south and they, they had filmed some stuff on Sunday. This was later in the week and they were, they were doing an interview and there was this church that had, had its roof completely blown off. But the next day, it was a Sunday, and it was a beautiful day. So they had church anyway out uh, with no roof, and there was lots of people there, and they were interviewing the pastor, and the pastor was giving glory to God as being sovereign over nature, being the one who caused this, and and just doing what an Orthodox real-life pastor does. And this TV pastor kind of interrupted him and was like, whoa, whoa, hold on there. You know, uh, God God doesn't want churches destroyed. That was an act of Satan. God doesn't, doesn't destroy stuff. I remember the real pastor looked at him like he had like three heads. It was like, what are you talking about? See, I wonder how often we think we have to sell Jesus. You know, we, got, we, we feel compelled to get him all polished up and pretty, make sure the interior is all clean, has that new savior smell, you know, because things can't be bad, right? He, he can't be responsible for anything bad. And if things are bad, well, actually, it's probably your fault. It's not Jesus' fault. Don't blame him. You, you haven't been living right. See, when we do that junk, we often come across as ridiculous followers of a superstition instead of those resting in the sovereign grace of an almighty God. See, Naomi's not afraid to confess God's power. In her distress, she's like, this stinks and you did it. How's that feel doing that? You would feel squeamish, wouldn't you, doing that? I would. 
coming in the church and like listing all the bad things. Like, it's your fault. Someone would shush you, right? <laughs> See, but she is missing something. I don't want to go too far in this. She is missing something. God has absolutely revealed himself as sovereign. Okay, full stop. But he has also revealed himself as good and kind and compassionate, like the story from Mark we read. I mean, I'm reminded of, it's so famous, I probably don't have to mention it, but I will. I'm reminded of that, that scene from C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Remember when first, the children are first hearing about Aslan from a talking beaver? Okay, if you haven't read the story, I'm sorry, you stick with me here. So, and they, they find out who Aslan is, and this, they, they, they get this bright, hopeful thing, because he's the Christ figure of the whole story, and then they find out that he's a lion, and one of the girls, you know, because they're all Brits, she has this wonder, ooh, um, a lion, well, is he quite safe? You know, and the beaver looks at her like, no, he's, of course he's not safe, he's a lion. And he has that famous line, you know it, right? He goes, but he's good. See, Naomi's forgotten that. Naomi's all about, yeah, God's a lion, but she's forgotten the part, yeah, he is a lion, he's not safe, but he's good. So Orpah hears all this, going back to the text, and Orpah gets it, she's gone. But Ruth won't leave. In fact, she holds on even tighter. And again, Naomi tries to convince her. Boys and girls, let's look at your verse 15. I I love how she tries to convince her to leave. Naomi said to her, why can't you be more like Orpah? She went back to her old life and so should you. She totally pulls the mom card. Why can't you be more like your sister? See, we're seeing more of Naomi's heart here, aren't we? She has offered blessing in God's name. She's credited God's sovereign power for her bad life. And now she tells Ruth, go back to Moab and go back to their gods because there's nothing happy or hopeful for you with my all-powerful God. I want to judge her, but I really can't because I remember back, gosh, when it was this 2003 to 2005 are probably the worst years of my adult life. The Lord just took me through those two years, what can only be called, you know, to, to quote Psalm 23, a valley of deep darkness. It was just, it was bad. I would tell people I was an atheist. Um, I, was, I was already had a seminary degree. was already ordained in, a, in, in the non, non-denominational church. And I, and I would tell people I was an atheist. And in my morning prayers every morning, as I was praying, I would tell God I didn't believe him and I was an atheist. I never claimed to be intelligent. So what was wrong with me? I mean, I confessed. Christ is Lord at 14 years old, and yet here I was. What was up with me? Because see, deep down, I thought God owed me a good life. And when he put me through a long trial, he wasn't living up to his end of the deal. So I was released from mine. You see, I didn't love God. I loved the stuff. I was all about the gifts, not the giver. And as long as my life worked, I was in. See, God needed to fix that in me. God needs to fix that in Naomi. And I wonder if he needs to fix that in some of you. Because that's right where Naomi is in our text. Her comfort, her sense of peace, her sense of value, her sense of meaning, they were all wrapped up in a family instead of the sovereign Lord. And so he took it away because she made these good things an idol. What is it in your life that's like that? What is it in your life that you have begun, a blessing that you've begun to make into an idol? 
I mean, for me at that time, looking back, I can see it so clear. It was, it was a career in ministry. I was out of seminary. I had worked for a couple years, and then I wasn't working in ministry, and I was pouting, basically. You know, what is it for you? God, you can't have this. This thing makes me happy. This thing makes me feel important. This thing gives me rest, and if you take it, I'll pout. I'll be resentful. I'll go to Moab, tell people I'm an atheist. See, so often we aren't like Abraham, right, who trusted enough to give up his son. We're not Job, who said, though he slay me, yet I will praise him. No, we're Naomi. Give me my happy life, make things work, and I'll come to church twice a month. Give occasionally. But if you don't, I'm staying home. I'm pouting. I won't worship you. See, we believers, we can put our hopes in idols, can't we? We can make a good thing into an ultimate thing. And when we do that, God challenges our idolatrous hopes. So we'll put our hope back in him. He'll take us from our very orthodox idolatry into a resolved hope, which is where this text goes next. So Naomi is one of God's people. She's repented from Moab. She's wounded. She's hurt. She's disappointed. But she has not totally abandoned her faith. Her false hopes have been destroyed, and she is clearly struggling. She can wish God's grace on others, notice. She just doesn't think there's any for her. God's good to other people. He's just not good to me. And here's what's great about this. This struggling, authentic, real-world faith gets Ruth's attention. She won't leave because she comes to believe in Naomi's God. The text is so clear. Ruth makes a confession of faith. I want to look again at verses 16 and 17 together. Notice this is not a wedding ceremony, but notice how powerful this covenant language is. She says, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. This is covenantal language of God's promises to his people. This is so close to the covenantal language that God uses a couple times for his people in Deuteronomy that most liberal scholars out there are like, yeah, Ruth probably just went control C, control V out of Deuteronomy. It's not, it's, you know, they just stole that. You know, or Ruth actually believes it and is confessing scripture out loud. You know. See, Ruth has not seen a great example of faith. Only the spirit working in her could cause this confession. Naomi is the worst evangelist ever. And yet, God uses her life and her testimony to convert Ruth. It's incredible. Man, that gives me hope for talking about Jesus. I hope it does you too. Now, I am not going to say, you don't even need to use words. Just let your life talk. No, you need words. God reveals his word. Use words. But notice what happens is often it's us going through real world struggles, honestly, that opens up unbelievers' ears to hear those words. If we are living truthfully before unbelievers, they're going to see our mess. Unless we're doing the whole like selling Jesus thing and putting up a good Christian veneer. Oh, praise God, everything is good. You know, as everything explodes in fire behind you, right? Oh, we're all good. We're all good. How, how are you? Jesus is great. 
right? Unless we're doing that and then our neighbors are they're not interested in that. But if you're like, yeah, my life is falling apart. It feels like God's out to get me, but I'm still gonna go to church and worship him. That messes people up. Like, really? Are you, are you okay? <laughs> and it will mess people up towards good very often when you have this raw, authentic, real faith that has warts. Because life has warts, doesn't it? I mean, the fact that is that people like me, people like you, selfish worshipers of false gods from the wrong side of town, people who have bad reputations, people who love Moab more than God's land, we still qualify for God's grace, warts and all. And that, and that messes up unbelievers who think that they have to earn something, that there's qualifications. And we see, man, when they look at us, they say, wow, you are so don't have everything put together, and yet you have this vibrant faith. I, I got to know more about that. I've told this story before, so I apologize for the repeat. You know, we have five kids, and when we were planning a church in Boston, that was very odd. Um, and one of my neighbors, I got to know, great guy, he, and he waited to have children like most of them did up there until he was older, so he was roughly my age, but his youngest was, you know, my youngest was older than his youngest. And I remember one day, you know, he, he, he interacted with us a lot, and one day he pulled me aside, he's like, how do you do it? I can barely keep my life together with one child. She drives me crazy. And you have five and your life is not total chaos. And I was like, oh dude, you just haven't looked close enough. You know? But we had a great conversation about the difficulties of, of raising children and how hard it is. And, and he, he, he wanted to know more about my faith in Jesus because we talked about how hard life is, not how everything's great. And so often we feel that pressure to do that, don't we? Ruth comes to faith because she sees Naomi struggling and losing and yet still holding on to a faith. Not much of a faith. It's a faith. There's nothing for me, but maybe my gracious God can give some of it to you because he's out to get me. I love how Ruth responds to her. Here's how he put it for the boys and girls. Let's look together at verses 16 and 17. Ruth told her, stop asking me to go away. I want to know the Lord as you do and be one of his people, even after you die, I promise. And notice here, boys and girls and adults, notice how in the ESV and in the kids' version, we have capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Now, whenever you see that in the Bible, that's not a title. That's a specific name. That's the difference in someone coming up to you and saying, hey, girl, versus, hey, Lucy, Okay? In the Hebrew, it's four consonants. We don't have the vowels, so we don't know how to pronounce it. There's been a couple invented words that are actually very beloved, so I'm not going to tell you what they are because you'll throw things at me. So instead of using an invented word, most modern translations now just do capital L-O-R-D. And when you see that, you need to remember that's a name that's not a title. So she comes and she says, this is God's actual personal name, the four consonants that he revealed to Moses in the burning bush when he introduced himself. This covenant God, may he, I want to know him, is what Ruth says. She doesn't just say the Hebrew word El, which means God. She says, oh, I want to know God. She says, I want to know him, your God, the covenant God of Israel. Don't ask me to go away. See, Ruth came from a culture that demanded human sacrifice. There was no love. There was no devotion. If they appeased that God with enough blood, then he would bless them. But here is Ruth. She sees Naomi. Her God has not performed. Her life is destroyed, and yet she's going back to his land. She blesses in his name. 
it not only messes Ruth up, but it foreshadows for us the promise of Jesus in whom God shed his own blood to bless his people. See, there's something substantial here that Ruth wants, and so she clings in verse 14 to Naomi, and it means what you think it does. Even in the midst of her pain and pouting, Naomi is a witness to the Lord, and Ruth gets it, and she wants it. Oh, dear Christian, hear that. Our testimony is the loudest when things are going badly in our lives. Naomi's small, wounded faith was enough. God used it to rescue Ruth. I mean, Ruth is suffering too. Her life is not great. But she sees hope in Naomi's raw, honest confession. And Ruth wants that hope too. See, here is a woman, Naomi, a believer, living a tragedy, resentful at God, honest about it, but still believing. Ruth wants that kind of real relationship with a real God a God who's big enough to handle real life. I I just want to ask you, Christians here today, are you real in your faith? Or do you feel like you have to be God's PR man? Do we have to spin our sufferings and our disappointments so so we make sure God looks good? Is our God really that weak? We have to do that for him? I mean, have we bought into the lie that Christians have to be, you know, happy, happy, happy of it, time, 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 or we're not honoring God somehow? <laughs> Don't look behind me. See, God doesn't need us to make him more palatable. A watching world in real pain itself is sick of that shallow, moralistic veneer posing as biblical Christianity. The best thing we can do to honor God and show his love is in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering, to declare, you've been hard on me. I'm confused and I'm hurt, but whatever my God ordains is right. See, God is working out his purposes for his glory. He does not need us to put a positive spin on his actions. And to non-Christians here today, or maybe non-Christians you might be in conversation with, what would you say? I would say, you know, the Bible takes a long time to tell its story. And and one of the ways it does that is by giving us foretastes of the main character in Scripture. The main character being Jesus Christ himself who claimed that in Luke 24. He basically said, it's all about me. You can look it up later yourself. So let Naomi give you a whiff from the kitchen of Jesus here, the meal that's about to come. Let her lashing out in her pain, her blaming of God, let her take you to see Jesus Christ himself in your pain. Look at Jesus, the Jesus who knowing the suffering that was to come, the night before he went to the cross, knowing the cross was gonna come, he's in a garden praying and he says, Father, take this from me, I don't wanna do this. The Jesus who on the cross himself screamed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is the same Savior who in the midst of all said, not what I want, but what you want matters. See, the gospel provides deep resources for dealing with pain and suffering. Jesus has been there, he's done that, and he can hold your hand through it, and sometimes he picks you up and just carries you right through it. 
See, it's only in Christianity that we see a suffering savior, one who instead of demanding our blood to appease him, shed his own blood to make us pleasing to him. So there are no easy answers for the pain, for the junk, for the suffering we all go through. And I apologize for men in my position who have given you simplistic answers in your pain. But I can offer you this. The gospel is that God loves us in his sovereign almighty power. And so he sent his son Jesus to live the life we should have lived, to suffer the fear, the disappointment, and the pain that we suffer, to die the death we should have died for our sins and then to be raised to new life for our complete healing. See, if the gospel is true, Our Lord himself suffered evil. He suffered pain. He was betrayed. He was disappointed. He was killed. But through his resurrection, he offers the promise that the pain we've endured, the injustice we've all suffered, it will be undone and made new is the promise. The world that he is bringing one day, someday, he promises that our heartache won't just be erased but in the new world he's making through the power of the gospel, he promises that all of our suffering will be made right. And he also promises that you'll understand it. I mean, how many of you, don't raise your hands, but how many of you so often like, you know what? I just want to know why. Why did I have to go through this? Why does this hurt so much? Why? God promises you'll know, you'll understand, and it'll be healed. I know that sounds too good to be true. I know. But you want that to be true so badly, don't you? You know, God can work with that. Even wanting such a thing to be true is a great start. Talk to the friend who brought you here today or talk to me afterwards about about this. And for all of us, our sovereign providential God, he leads our paths, he directs our paths, sometimes around but very often he directs our paths right through pain and suffering for our good and his glory. In those times, cleave to him. Hold on to him. Because if you are in Jesus, he always holds on to you with a love that will never let you go. Do you know a love like that? I hope you do. And if not, ask God to reveal himself to you, even now. Let's pray together. And gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we admit that dealing with difficulty, frustration, disappointment, and pain in in our Christian life is, is one of the more difficult things. Lord, it causes us to question. It causes us to doubt. Lord, we pray that by your spirit it would begin to cause us a deeper walk that you would help us to shed the hindrances so we can run with endurance the race marked before us. Lord, we pray that you would meet us in our pain, that you would meet us in our suffering, that you would give us the strength to not think we have to put a positive spin on it, but instead, Lord, to trust you to be honest. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us the joyful privilege of actually using our pain to build your kingdom, that others would see something real and confess faith in you because of it. And Lord, we thank you for your grace. Lord, I pray even now, those who are going through pain and suffering, those who this is not a hypothetical or a memory, but this is a reality and it stinks. Lord, I pray that even now you would meet them by your spirit 
that you would bring comfort as only you can. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.